At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Hey, this is Max. I'm one of the uh, producers of Stay Tuned. And I wanted to tell you about another podcast that I think you might like. It's called Masters of Scale. You might have heard of Reid Hoffman. He's the legendary Silicon Valley investor and entrepreneur. He co-founded LinkedIn, invested early in Facebook and Airbnb. Everyone in tech goes to Reid for advice on how to make something huge. And uh, now he's back with the second season of his excellent podcast, Masters of Scale. In the new episodes, Reid talks to famous founders about what really happens as companies grow from zero to a gazillion. Guests on Masters of Scale include Mark Zuckerberg. Brian Chesky of Airbnb, Reed Hastings of Netflix, Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook, Kara Golden of Hintwater. And the guests aren't just retelling the same stories you always hear. These are real tools and on-the-ground advice you can use to build your business. The stories on Masters of Scale are always honest, they're always useful, and uh, often they're pretty funny. There's no jargon and no posturing. Be sure to catch the season premiere of Masters of Scale. Peter Thiel is the guest this week. Okay, here, stay tuned. From CAFE and WNYC Studios, this is Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. It's really important for some of us, at least, to stand up now and say what we're experiencing is not right and it's not normal. That's my guest on the show today, Senator Jeff Flake from Arizona. Senator Flake recently announced he won't be running for re-election, and he made his announcement in a memorable speech on the Senate floor. Here's a clip. We were not made great as a country by indulging in or even exalting our worst impulses, turning against ourselves, glorifying in the things that divide us, and calling fake things true and true things fake. So I was really interested in talking to a sitting Republican senator about his decision to both be so vocal in criticizing the president of his own party and also to retire permanently from the Senate. And I have some exciting news. We're doing our first live version of Stay Tuned, here in New York City, and I'd love you to come. It's going to be on the evening of December 11th at the Skirball Center. My guest will be Hassan Minaj of The Daily Show. Tickets are on sale now. Get them while they're still available. Go to cafe.com slash pre. All right, time for your questions. This first question comes from Twitter, and it's from at Baba Moa. And the tweet reads, Step two in Dictator's Playbook, demean judicial system. Or is that step three? So I think what this person is referring to is a series of things that happened over the last week that came out of the mouth of Donald Trump. Among other things, he called the Justice Department that he is supposed to lead a laughingstock. He said he was upset with the Justice Department. On the other hand, he also said that he was frustrated that he's not supposed to get involved with the FBI, but he doesn't like a lot of the things that they're doing. And then he also made comments about what should happen to the terrorist, alleged terrorist, who killed eight people with his truck in Lower Manhattan last week, 
saying that he should get the death penalty, although there's a presumption of innocence, and he involved himself in the judicial process in a way that he shouldn't have, and also started to suggest on Twitter, uh, before I think a lot of people in his administration understood what he was doing, that this person should be sent to Guantanamo Bay to be prosecuted. It's not clear that Donald Trump knew really what he was talking about. He had first suggested that things go more quickly in Guantanamo Bay. That obviously is not true. And then the next morning he said, well, sometimes it goes more quickly in civilian court. Regardless of that, um, I don't know how much people are paying heed, and I'm glad they're not, to the ill-considered tweets of a president that are randomly sent out on a particular day. Because as I'm sure you saw in the news, uh, my old office, led by June Kim, my successor, within 24 hours, I think, charged the suspect with federal crimes, and he's going to be tried in civilian court. And, and by the way, for anybody who doesn't remember, the track record of bringing to justice terrorists who have been responsible for death, mayhem, and support of terrorism in New York and around the world in federal court in New York is excellent. The record for bringing people to justice in Guantanamo Bay is basically zero. This next question comes from Twitter also. It's from at Truth Rescue. Good name. The question is, Preet, do you think it's possible that Flynn is in the same boat as Papadopoulos? So I guess what that's referring to is, uh, the question is, is Michael Flynn, who was very briefly the national security advisor to the president, is he in the same boat as George Papadopoulos, who, as you, I'm sure, read, was a foreign policy advisor to the president's campaign? He has been charged, he has already pled guilty, and he seems to be cooperating with the government, meaning... He's providing testimony information or the promise of testimony and information about other people probably higher up in the food chain. One caveat here that I always like to make clear, uh, I have no idea what Michael Flynn is up to and I have no real idea as to what Special Counsel Mueller is up to with respect to Michael Flynn. What I can say is uh, we haven't heard a lot. The shoe hasn't dropped, this other shoe, uh, if you want to call it the Michael Flynn shoe. So you know, people might be wondering after – Paul Manafort was charged and George Papadopoulos was announced to have pled guilty, why this other shoe hasn't dropped, the Michael Flynn shoe. Now, there were some reports in the last few days that say that that Bob Mueller has enough evidence to indict Michael Flynn. I don't know if that's true or not, but a lot of the reporting that has been coming out of noted news sites has turned out to be true. The fact that it came out that, that Mueller's team believes it has enough to indict might mean that they're in this process of trying to convince Michael Flynn to testify. To, to my mind, the fact that that information has come out, I think it's is coming from people who are associated with the defense team for Michael Flynn. So people on the Mueller team uh, are getting close to bringing charges. They would rather have him on their side. In other words, they would like to flip him, I'm guessing, to have him provide information, substantial assistance against other people, up to and including the president of the United States. And they're making their pitch to him. And they're saying to him, you know what? We're ready to charge. We have enough. Because that's the language it sounds like you would use when you're trying to pitch someone to come over to the government team. And that information was transmitted to the lawyers and maybe other people, and that's how it got out to the press. So it's an educated guess, but I, I would figure, given the reporting, given what we've seen with respect to the speed of charging Paul Manafort and other stuff that's been reported about Michael Flynn's conduct, I would expect to see a charge against Michael Flynn. Unclear at this point whether it will be a charge that he'll contest or we'll find out that he pled guilty to something because he's cooperating. This next question is a voicemail from Catherine in Canada. Hi, Preet. I uh, love the podcast and listened to the latest episode and was shocked to hear that you don't like the whiteboard. What is up with that? Just want to know. Thanks a lot, Preet. 
Wow. <laughs> um, so, you know, I don't always hear these questions in advance. And so my, my producers are sitting in here and they just played me this voicemail. It's just, it's not, a, I think prosecutors have been taught to be very careful about what they display in terms of their thinking and ideas uh, for the very reason that everyone wants to know what's going on with the Mueller team. You know, we, you know, did a lot of our work behind closed doors and we're not a whiteboard kind of institution. Uh, I now work in producing this podcast at my brother's media company and everywhere I look, there's a freaking whiteboard. It's also ephemeral. It doesn't last long. You, you know, you, you write your great ideas on the whiteboard and then someone wipes it away. Not only do we want our stuff to be secret, but we also want to be, be able to keep a record of it. And the idea that you make a list of something and then someone erases it and you want to go back and figure out what was on your list and it's not there makes no sense to me at all. Apologize to the whiteboard people. My guest this week is Senator Jeff Flake from Arizona. We spoke just this last Monday, one day after the devastating mass shooting at a church in Texas. One of the many things that came up was Jeff Flake's record on gun control and the NRA's influence over Congress. That's coming up right after this. Stay tuned. Support for this episode of Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. A huge monthly cell phone bill might feel inevitable. We've all gotten used to climbing rates, surprising surcharges, and expensive plans. And most of us shrug and assume that we're stuck, and there's no other option. So we just pay. But what if there was another option? An option that was much more affordable? Allow me to introduce you to Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile offers wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. All Mint Mobile plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can make the switch and keep the phone and number you have right now, along with all of your existing contacts. You can get this new customer offer and a new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month by going to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, our bottles might still look the same, but some of them can be remade in a whole new way. Using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles made using no new plastic except the caps and labels. You'll be seeing more of these new bottles in more places, and that's thanks to you. Because when we get more bottles back, we can use less new plastic. Learn how our bottles are made to be remade at madetoberemade.org. Senator Flake, thanks for being here today. You bet. Why are you doing my podcast? <laughs> I was asked. <laughs> That's all enjoy- it takes? <laughs> no. I've enjoyed uh, watching you and uh, and hearing your commentary. So I, I figure if uh, you're as good on your podcast <laughs> as you're on television, I'd like to be on. Well, you are a very good politician, sir. <laughs> Let me ask you this. What's a Republican? Well, traditionally, a Republican has been somebody who adheres to the philosophy of limited government, economic freedom, and individual responsibility. That uh, I think that definition is changing right now. And how, why is it changing? I, I think it's uh, kind of been overtaken by populism, and uh, it's redefined now. If you ask the average Republican or those who support the president, where is a Republican on free trade, for example, they'd give you a much different answer than when 
you know, where the party has been traditionally. You know, in 1960, Barry Goldwater wrote his Conscience of a Conservative when he felt that the party had been compromised by the New Deal. And uh, now it's, uh, you know, kind of a different thing, just uh, populism. You wrote a book by the same name. <laughs> I did. Wasn't I did. that name taken? Yeah, it was. I stole it right from him. Um, okay. Well. wasn't very original, but I, but I felt, you know, 57 years later that uh, our party was uh, being driven a different direction and 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 not in a direction that is really a governing philosophy but rather populism really isn't a governing philosophy it just won't last long but but to what extent does the personality of a party change because of the leadership of the party as opposed to the the sentiments of the people voting in the party there there's always some of that um there, there you always uh, take on i think some of the identity of the the leader uh, the one who who uh, can actually get out and articulate the values that you stand for. But at this point, as I wrote in the book, I never had, at any time have I seen the, the, the party or the the voters cast aside uh, principles that we've believed in for so many years and just in favor of uh, something that was really an unfamiliar standard for the party. So you're not running for re-election? I'm not. Why could you choose not to run again? Well, uh, I, I felt that it was this is an important time, an important time for people to speak out and, and to say that what we're experiencing is not normal. And I couldn't do that and run for re-election and run the kind of race I would have to run to win. But why not? Right now, in the Republican Party, if you are not four square behind the president in both uh, in terms of policy and behavior, then uh, you're kind of not welcome in the party. And so there is a very narrow path for Republicans to run. And uh, if you're willing or if you feel duty-bound to, to speak out, particularly at this important time, and I think this is a very important time to speak out, uh, then I just felt I couldn't do both. I guess I'm a little bit confused. When you say there's no room in the party, isn't there room always for somebody to persuade voters to sure. his or her point of view? which is what politics is about. I had hoped that uh, this fever would kind of break by the time the primary comes, August of next year. I do think ultimately the the fever will break. I don't think that what we're experiencing now, uh, the kind of anger and resentment uh, that we see, uh, that's not a governing philosophy. So eventually we're going to have to come back if we want to, one, win re-elections in the future, and two, govern, actually accomplish something. Uh, but it's not going to change by next year. It became increasingly clear that that it wasn't going to. And uh, I, I, frankly, uh, saw, all right, I could spend my time trying to thread that needle and uh, cozy up to the president as much as I could uh, to persuade the voters, which if you pull out there, uh, the vast majority of Republican primary voters, which is a subset of a subset of a subset, we all recognize it's a smaller percentage that actually vote in Republican primaries, but they right now are firmly behind the president. And uh, if you pull them, many of the number one issue is, are you with the president? <laughs> it's it's become a shirts versus skins kind of exercise. You're either with the president or you're against him. It's really important for some of us, at least, to stand up now and say that what we're experiencing is not right and it's not normal. I guess I'm trying to get you to say that thing that a politician will never say, but maybe because you're retiring eventually at the end of this term, you might say something like this. You know, it takes two to tango, right? It takes someone to have populist beliefs and to say things that he doesn't really mean. 
But then it also takes people to vote for that person and give that person so much support, as you're saying, that it leaves no room for a person like you. Well, I'm still a politician, <laughs> after all. <laughs> and no politician is ever going to blame the voters. <laughs> and I, I do uh, think that uh, we have some really steep challenges facing the country, and uh, we aren't going to address them if we continue to uh, belittle our opponents, political opponents, refer to people on the other side of the aisle as clowns and losers. Um, but I guess I don't understand necessarily, and I'm just playing devil's advocate mm-hmm. here, why those views necessarily mean you don't run again. Why not choose to run in the way that you think is proper, righteous, just, true to your principles, and if you lose, you lose, but at least you have set down a record of what you believe in and maybe lay a foundation for other people for the future. What it would take is uh, if you're really going to run, you have to dedicate every waking moment to raising money um, or to having campaign events uh, for an entire year. That's a tremendous toll on your family. So I don't want to run to lose. (laughs) I want to run to win. And I can just as effectively speak out more effectively, certainly have more time without spending time raising money or holding campaign events than I would if I were to try to one, thread that needle where you had a chance at re-election, and two, spend all the time raising money and holding campaign events. Much but, better to come on a podcast like this <laughs> to talk about a, these things. I can tell you, it was a little liberating to wake up uh, <laughs> the Wednesday morning after the, the speech and realize I don't have a fundraising call to make today <laughs> when, that's, when that's I've been making, making a lot of them. But I, I mean, I, I enjoy the, the, the debate, and that, the toughest part of this is exactly what you said, to seem to be backing away from a fight or a battle. But the, the, the toll that that takes, and, and I can tell you, given what I've seen over the past uh, year, I don't think there is a way that you can tell the truth about what's going on in our politics today and actually stand up when you ought to stand up. I don't think you can do that right now and win a primary battle in Arizona. One of the reasons I, I keep pressing this issue is you have said, and you said already here, that one of your heroes is Barry Goldwater, and you stole the title of his book Mm -hmm. for your own book, uh, which is doing very well. Congratulations. But Barry Goldwater ran for president in 1964 against a very popular person at the time, Lyndon Johnson, before Vietnam got sort of Mm -hmm. carried away. And I'm betting he knew he was going to lose. In fact, he lost 49 states. He said he knew he was going to as soon as he knew he was running against Johnson instead of Kennedy. And And yet he ran... And some people would say it was in vain. He sort of faced a similar kind of crossroads that you're saying you're facing now. But he chose to run, and there are people in your party, whatever you want to call right. it now, who say that he was the founding father of Reaganism, conservatism mm-hmm. in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And but for that run by Barry Goldwater, which was maybe quixotic, like your race might mm-hmm. be, the, the Republican Party might not have had mm-hmm. uh, that giant of its party. I, mean, I disagree with a lot of things uh, on that side of the, of the fence. But what do, you, what do you say to that? Why not do what Barry Goldwater did? Well, one, the national stage is a little different than, uh, than the, the stage of running a Senate campaign in Arizona. And two, I, I am the incumbent. I have another 14 months in office. It's a pretty good stage to have the Senate floor. If I were to go out and continue to speak out like I have uh, against where I think the party is going and where I think it should go to, you lose the support you need. And like I said, this is an important time for somebody to be standing up in the Senate and saying, this is not normal. So there's multiple things that a senator does. On, on the one hand, the senator speaks, and you talked a lot mm-hmm. in, your, in your prior speeches and today about speaking up. 
Uh, what about voting? Are there, are there things that you intend to vote on differently because you're freed from the shackles of having to run again? I'm, I'm certainly not going to vote uh, against the president out of spite or whatever else. But the interesting thing is I, I, I hear uh, uh, people say, well, he's voted with the president, you know, 90 percent of the time. 90 percent. I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> the, the truth is, I mean, if you look at what you vote on, one, where you vote with the president, you you could say you do it on personnel and you know, ninety percent of what we've done in the Senate is personnel. You you vote for the president's nominees for the courts, which, frankly, I think the president's appointed some pretty darn good judges and uh, his cabinet and other uh, administration officials. And that's a lot of what we voted on. That you could say I voted with the president. Uh, take my votes to repeal and replace Obamacare. I've voted that way 30 times already, uh, whether the president is there or not. Um, I feel that we ought to repeal and replace Obamacare. So a lot of what we vote on in the Senate isn't really with the president or against the president. It's uh, it's what we do. And so I, I will continue to vote if people want to say it's with the president uh, when I think he's right. Uh, I'll oppose him when I think he's wrong. Um, much of the policies that uh, I disagree with the president on have not come to a vote in the Senate yet. Trade issues, for example, uh, those are executive decisions. Uh, his travel ban, I have not agreed with his travel ban, certainly not when it was a Muslim ban, as he called it, uh, during the campaign. And, uh, and his travel ban, I don't think it's unconstitutional, but certainly isn't wise. Uh, so those kind of things I'll, I'll oppose. It may not be in legislation, but I'll certainly speak up against uh, where the president's going. Do you think that all the president's uh, nominees to be in the cabinet are supremely qualified? I don't I don't think any president's uh, nominees are supremely qualified, but he's got some qualified people there, particularly his national security team, uh, Secretary Mattis, uh, not, certainly, not his... and Tillerson. Um, but and, what about uh, Michael Flynn? And, uh, oh, Michael Finn. Flynn didn't come up for a Senate vote. That yeah. wasn't a Senate confirmable. I said, I said from the beginning, if that were, I wouldn't have voted for him. Uh, that I thought a conspiracy theorist like that doesn't belong as head of national security. What about the time right now you think is not normal? Well, for example, uh, when the president said on Friday that uh, the FBI and his federal agencies ought to go after his former political opponents, that's not normal. That is a president undermining our institutions. Or for somebody to come out so directly and say uh, about his own Justice Department and our criminal justice system that uh, that this is, I can't remember the words he used, <laughs> but this- I think he said laughingstock. Laughingstock, yeah. Um, that's, that's a president undermining institutions that we rely on. Are you disappointed in any way in your former colleague, Jeff Sessions, who is now attorney general, for not standing up for the department in the face of those comments by Donald Trump? Well, I was certainly uh, proud of him for saying that he needed to recuse himself. I thought that that, uh, that took guts. Certainly the president wasn't a fan of that move. If you were the attorney general last Friday and the president said the things he said about the FBI and the Justice Department <laughs> or about you, as the attorney general, you know, some humiliating things, what would you have said? <laughs> I, I don't want to put myself in that position. Or I, I just say in the position I'm in right now, I did what I did. Right. And uh, I think it would be hard to stay. Uh, for a lot of his uh, cabinet picks, uh, he seems to seems to uh, undermine them regularly. We've, we've certainly seen that with the Secretary of State. Bob Corker has been very vocal on that issue. Yeah, so let's change the, the example from saying obnoxious and mocking things about the attorney general 
in whose place you don't want to put yourself. But what about when he says things about you? I mean, you're a, you're a person. You have a, you have a family. How does it make you feel when the president oh, tweets about uh, for, you? Frankly, not. <laughs> I mean. What would the alternative be? <laughs> I mean, for him to say nice things about me, I don't know. Well, but take he, that. The president I, goes out of his way to say things about you. Some, you know, for example, Bob Corker, your colleague, has referred to the White House as a dull daycare. Mm-hmm. Um, you haven't responded no, that way. Why no, not? No, I haven't. I, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I certainly have not spared um, criticism where I think it's warranted. But uh, I think it's our job, as Teddy Roosevelt said, very very clearly, and I mentioned that in my speech, it's our responsibility as citizens to praise the president when we think he's right and criticize him when we think he's wrong. He's just one, the most important perhaps, but only one of uh, the public servants who uh, serve this institution. Do any of your family members think you should hit back harder? <laughs> I, I have a big family. <laughs> I have so do you five do you... kids and uh, <laughs> 10 siblings. Uh, and that's usually provided the margin during elections <laughs> for me. Yeah, uh, but uh, that should be enough to get you elected. They, they certainly, they're, 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 uh, they're supportive and I have a great family. I'm going to read to you something you said in that speech on the Senate that's gotten so much attention because I have a question about it. You said, it is also clear to me for the moment that we have given in or given up on the core principles in favor of a more viscerally satisfying anger and resentment. To be clear, the anger and resentment that the people feel at the royal mess that we've created are justified, but anger and resentment are not a governing philosophy. What is wrong with people being angry and resentful and having that inform the principles that they espouse? Well, I, like I said, I, I don't excuse the voters for feeling that way when they look at Washington and see the dysfunction that... Uh, that, that, you know, it has become, uh, they see a $20 trillion debt and us not taking any serious moves to, to address that. They have a right to be frustrated. Um, but instead, as public officials, we ought to offer one constructive solution. It's always easier. The easy route is for a politician to say, as I've said in, in the book, a lot to point at a shuttered factory and blame free trade agreement or whatever. But it's our first responsibility as elected officials to at least tell the truth. Um, You can put some spin on it. Any politician does. I understand that. But at least recognize uh, what we need to do to address the problems that we have. Instead, uh, what uh, I think this administration has done, and certainly the president, is, is, uh, you know, look at a shuttered factory and say, it was that free trade agreement with Mexico, for example. Um, or that judge, uh, he can't judge fairly because his, of his Mexican heritage. And scapegoat certain groups or individuals. Uh, that's not what leaders ought to do. Uh, the voters, they deserve the right to do that. <laughs> but, uh, but as leaders, uh, we ought to do a little better. Is this the most angry you've seen the American electorate since you've been in office? Yeah, certainly. And, and maybe you just see it expressed more uh, easily because... Uh, Somebody can take to Twitter and you see it immediately. If you're a voter and there are two candidates to choose from and candidate A is decent and uses the right language, as we've Mm -hmm. been discussing, some people don't, and candidate A uh, is decent in personal life and in public life and treats people well with respect, uh, but then candidate B is not so decent and divides and, uh, you know, plays on people's fears, but candidate B is closer to your views mm. on matters of policy. Who's the voter supposed to vote for? 
Well, that's a good question. I, I, I think you make your choices there on different scales of how far they're outside of your your comfort zone on policy, I guess. But uh, obviously, uh, decency matters. It does, and uh, it, it's not it's it's not only policy that matters. You, you could have somebody who who you shared every view that they share on policy, but if they are indecent and if they cannot uh, work with the other side, if they refer to them as clowns and losers on the other side, then they aren't able to enact the policies that you favor. Do you think Barack Obama is a decent man? Yes. Do you think Donald Trump is a decent man? You bet. I think, I think uh, in, in, uh, in their private moments, and you see a relationship with family and whatnot, I think there's, there's a decency that all of us have. Uh, but uh, but I, I think you know, the fact that uh, you have those relationships that people see privately and, and you uh, act in different ways publicly, then there's a problem there. Do you think Donald Trump espouses uh, the character of decency in his public rhetoric? No. No, I don't. Uh, I think uh, privately, and I, I've heard people say, if you get to know him privately, then uh, it's a different person. But that's not what we see. I don't think we've seen behavior that, that should be modeled. Have some of your colleagues been upset with you and your speech? Sure. Can you name any of them? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> can you give me a, Can you give us some No, issues? I mean, some have publicly. What states are they from? <laughs> no, some have publicly said that, uh, you know, we ought to keep these uh, things private. Um, and, and obviously, uh, I, I have discussions with folks in the White House, and I've, I've done as much privately as I can. So it's not just uh, speeches made on the Senate floor. What are those conversations like? <laughs> with colleagues? Yeah. Oh, I, I think, I mean, there, there are a lot more who feel uh, and wish that uh, they were in a position to stand up and, and say some of the things I've said. Some don't believe that I should be, or, or they certainly wouldn't do it themselves. I hear sometimes, though, in public statements, uh, some House members in particular uh, making it sound like the, that we're in some kind of subservient relationship with the president, that he is our boss, <laughs> or, or words to that effect. And that is not the case. Uh, there are three separate branches of government. We're the Article One branch, and uh, no senator uh, or member of the House ought to be a rubber stamp for any president, Republican or Democrat. What has John McCain said to you about this? Uh, John, uh, he's, he, uh, he said a lot of things publicly that I agree with. I won't characterize our private conversations. Mitch McConnell? <laughs> Anybody. I, I won't say Let me ask you privately. this way. Who's more fun to get a beer with, Mitch McConnell or <laughs> well, Chuck Schumer? You're asking a Mormon. I've never taken a beer with anybody. So, <laughs> or a cup of coffee. Hot chocolate, maybe? <laughs> not that either. But uh, uh, hot chocolate, I'm not, you know, I, I get along uh, with uh, the one thing that is going to be tough about leaving is uh, the camaraderie uh, on the Republican and Democratic side. Uh, we get along well. And and that's what I wish people could see, is uh, you know in the house gym or or elsewhere or on the baseball diamond with our uh, game that we play every year. Uh, there's there's a lot more good feelings than, than you see publicly, and we get along better than uh, than we want to display. I think I, the reason I ask about Senator Schumer is I work for him as his chief mm-hmm. counsel on the Judiciary Committee for four and a half years before I became the United States Attorney, and he said this about you. And you don't hear people talking this way about people across the aisle. He said, quote, I don't agree with him, but he's sort of the best of America. He's an honest, hardworking guy who states his mind, 
who's willing to stick his neck out on issues. Does that does that hurt you with your constituency when <laughs> certainly Chuck would. says yes, something you like that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I you know I was on I was a member of the Gang of Eight, and for a seven month period, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time together. So I I was I was pleased to to see that. But along those lines, um, during the race when Tim Kaine was picked as uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, running mate. I uh, had been working with Tim on AUMF. I'm still working with authorization for use of military force. We'd teamed up on some other issues, and uh, we were good friends. And uh, I, I just playfully tweeted, uh, now I'm trying to count the ways I hate Tim Kaine, but I'm drawing a blank. He's a good man. Uh, congratulations. And I got immediately <laughs> emails and texts uh, and mean tweets uh, from Republicans saying, basically, if you can't say anything bad, don't say anything at all. Right. And, and it was, uh, I just thought, that's beyond the pale. And and we, if we're going to solve the big issues that we've got to solve, in particular our debt and our deficit, we're going to have to come together and share the political risk. If you look at what we're dealing with right now, this tax reform, if you look back to 1986, um, I happen to be with uh, George Soltz, uh, Reagan's former Secretary of State. He's 96 years old, very much uh, involved and informed with what's going on now. And he said, hey, I talked to him the other day. He said, tax reform is easy. He said, you just lower the rate, broaden the base. We got 97 votes for it in 1986. 97 votes in the Senate for a big, complex tax reform package that gored just about everybody's ox. And that was the point. That, you know, it used to be that Republicans and Democrats would come together and say, you know, let's share the the meager credit and let's inoculate ourselves, you know, against the, you know, the the, the risk of uh, everybody being mad at this by all voting together here. And they would come together on big issues. And we're going to have to have that for some of the big issues. And, and we, I just don't see that. That seems a galaxy far, far away from now. Why, why doesn't that happen anymore? I think the parties uh, have, have decided that we're better off if you could pass legislation with a big bipartisan majority or you could pass legislation with a narrow partisan majority. We would instinctively opt for the latter because then you could use it as a cudgel to beat the Democrats with. And and uh, if you could get the credit for that legislation and, and uh, you design it in a way that they couldn't vote for it. This podcast is relatively young. We've only been doing this for a few weeks. But uh, this is the second time that I'm taping an episode with a guest that we're taping literally the day after a tragic, devastating mass shooting. Right. And it was just a few weeks ago that I had the day after the Las Vegas shooting where so many people died. John Miller, who's the counterterrorism official at the NYPD, the, the head of counterintel. And he said this on the podcast a few weeks ago, and I just want to play it for you and, and get your reaction. So I guess we know who we are and what's important to us. If our guns are more important than our elected officials, more important than our families at the mall, more important than our children in school, even when they're in the hands of people who shouldn't have them, I shouldn't have been able to obtain them, people who are emotionally disturbed, uh, where that's been documented. If that's who we are, I think we need to ask why. I think we should all be asking a question, what makes sense? What makes sense, Senator? (laughs) 
I do think that uh, those of us who believe in the Second Amendment, and I do, those of us who grew up on on a ranch and a farm like I did and grew up with uh, firearms, uh, recognize that there are limits. Uh, We all recognize that nobody should walk around with a fully automatic weapon. Uh, For example, there are limits, and uh, I think reasonable limits can be placed. uh, And, for example, after the Las Vegas shooting, I think there was a virtual consensus out there that uh, mechanisms which make a semi-automatic weapon fire like an automatic ought to be banned. We'll see if the agencies go ahead and do that and then uh, follow, follow up in Congress if we need to. Um, we obviously need a better system uh, for background checks where uh, we share information better on those with mental illness where it's documented or adjudicated. Uh, we don't have a good system there. I've introduced legislation to do that. I think people who are on a no-fly list should be on a no-buy list as well. And that's something where there's not as much agreement on. Uh, so I do think that reasonable uh, regulations can be put in place it's not going to solve everyone. I, I happen to be on the receiving end of some gunfire uh, this summer um, on the baseball field. Right. With Representative and, Scalise was shot. Uh, right. And uh, so I've, I've kind of seen that side, and uh, it's not a pleasant place to be, let me tell you. Since you're not running again, can I ask you if you think that there are some people who vote the way they vote uh, more because they're afraid of the NRA, losing funding from them or being attacked by them in the scorecard than because they have a strong belief in the particular position on God. Oh, sure. Sure. Uh, that's the case uh, that, that with terrible? a lot of lobby groups. Isn't yeah. that a terrible thing? Uh, it is, but uh, but that's not the only area. Uh, there are areas on the left where people vote the way they do um, because maybe more of a fear of uh, being targeted by groups or individuals. So, did, you, did you ever vote on that so, basis? So I'd like to think I haven't, but, uh, but obviously uh, you... you uh, I think if we remove all political considerations, I think that we'd have a bit of a different regulatory structure than we have right now, put it that way. What I think th- all of us are guilty of that, myself included. What two or three things do you think would be different with respect to how guns are purchased in America and regulated if there were no political considerations? One, like I said, you'd certainly not have mechanisms that would make a semi-automatic fire like an automatic. So uh, any any uh, bump stock, crank, uh, trigger mechanism. Uh, you'd, you'd have a more seamless uh, system when it comes to uh, people with mental health issues. The The next system just doesn't share information like it should. And uh, if the information that we're learning right now, it's still early after the shooting in Texas yesterday is true, then even the criminal background history isn't shared well enough. And this person was convicted in a military court of a domestic uh, violence crime that uh, should have disallowed him, um, you know, the right to purchase a weapon. So uh, that information needs to be shared better as well. You also have had a colleague, uh, Gabby Giffords in the house, who was shot. Can I ask you if when you are on the baseball diamond and one of your colleagues is felled by a bullet and you see him bleeding and you're you're not sure he's going to live or die, does a visceral experience like that change your view about policy? And should it um, I think you t- you take every experience like that and, and think how can we how can we address this in the case of the baseball shooting uh, this person didn't have a mental um, health issue um, he had a, a weapon that he legally purchased um, I don't know if the regulations that I've just talked about um, 
or better application of them would have would have snagged him. I, I just don't know. But uh, I can just tell you, it's it's not a not a situation I ever want to be in again. I want to ask you about another issue before we have sure. to go, and that's immigration reform mm-hmm. and issues relating to immigrants. I'm an immigrant, so I have personal views on this on this point, not just as a citizen, but also as someone who who got so much by coming to America. And I know you have views on this. I worked in the Senate in uh, 2007, and that was a time when there was a Republican president who was in favor of comprehensive immigration reform right. and a path to citizenship, and the Senate had just gone Democratic. And so there was a lot of uh, fervor and excitement and optimism that some you know grand compromise could be achieved by a lot of people. You had a willing president of one party. You had a willing majority in the Senate of the other party, and it didn't go anywhere. So what's going to happen with immigration, particularly <laughs> given the rhetoric we have now? Well, I mean, we have something right now, a kind of a forcing mechanism, the, the DACA issue, that uh, 800,000 kids who are now protected, these are kids who were brought across the border when they were children, uh, they're going to lose their protection uh, on the 1st of March unless we act. So I hope that that forces us to the table and we can do more comprehensive reform. I've, uh, as we've talked about before, uh, been in favor of uh, comprehensive reform. And I do think uh, on the political level, we Republicans uh, need to do better. That's an area where when you look at the share of the Hispanic vote, for example, that Republicans get, uh, it's it's pretty meager. And it's tough to see uh, moving forward how we're going to succeed as a national party unless we um, get right on that issue and are able to uh, actually speak to these groups in ways that uh, we can convince them to vote our way. Um, and, and I don't think we've done that. For me, this issue, it's certainly colored by the way I grew up. I, as I wrote in my book, um, I grew up on a, on a ranch in northern Arizona. We used migrant labor, uh, much of it people who came across illegally. And uh, I saw how hard they worked and uh, how they wanted to be here, how they wanted to provide for their families. And I've never been able to look at them as a criminal class uh, since that time. One of the big critics who used to be uh, high up in the administration and on the staff for President Trump, Steve Bannon. Are you glad he's out of the White House? Yes, I am. And what do you make of what he said about you? I think he takes credit for, <laughs> I think he called you his, one of his first scalps. Any, any reaction to that? Uh, he can he can say whatever he wants. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of that kind of politics. Um, I, I think we're better than that. And uh, I think as a party, as a Republican party, that's not where we want to be. Um, I think we want to be an inclusive uh, party, a big tent uh, that uh, has more of a diversity of opinion and, and certainly uh, more of an adherence to principle. And that principle is inclusion. So, uh, so no, I'm not a fan of, the, of those kind of politics. How do you define political courage? Well, standing up for what you know is right, regardless of political consequence. And how much political courage do you foresee on the part of your colleagues in the Congress coming up? I'll, I'll, I'll leave that to them. Um, I, I, I serve with a lot of good people on both sides of the aisle, and uh, I'm grateful they're there. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? <laughs> you know, over time, uh, over time, I'm optimistic. We have an incredible system here. Uh, we do. Um, these institutions that we have are strong and durable. I think they're being tested now. Uh, but we've, we've gone through tougher things in the past. Are there particular institutions 
you're more sanguine about and others less sanguine about. So if we took the courts, the Congress, the press, the executive branch. Well, I, I am concerned about, uh, you know, as we talked about Madison <laughs> and uh, uh, the Constitution and the separation of powers. Um, I, I think that Congress is, uh, is not uh, upholding its end of the bargain and uh, not asserting itself as our Constitution requires and allows. And it, it baffles me why we uh, will willingly cede authority to the executive branch that we ought to hold. And, and I hope that uh, as we go through these, you know, these tough times coming up, that, that we'll stand up when we need to. Senator, thank you very much. The book is The Conscience of a Conservative. I really, really appreciate your time. I know you're very busy. Pleasure to have you on the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. And now we're at the point of the show where I want to talk about something in the news that struck me and stuck with me. So as everyone knows, this week there was an election. And there were a lot of local elections all over the country, including in New York and New Jersey and Virginia and other places. And there was a particular election in a town called Edison in New Jersey, not far from where I grew up. You know, I'm from Jersey. And there was a school board election in which there were two candidates running, both Asian American, one Chinese American named Jerry Shi, and one Indian American named Falgani Patel. And in the last week, there were flyers that were sent out uh, and mailers, I think to various people who might be voting in the election, and they're pretty nasty. And on the flyer, there's a picture of each of the candidates, both Asian American, with a headline that says, Make Edison Great Again. And it complains about, apparently, you know, that an Indian American and a Chinese American had the temerity to run for office with the complaint, the Chinese and Indians are taking over our town, Chinese school, Indian school, cricket fields. I don't know why that's such a big problem, cricket fields. Enough is enough. The reason I know about these flyers is because my parents still live in New Jersey and live not far from Edison. By the way, if you're ever in Edison, Mogul, great Indian restaurant. And the reason I know about these flyers is my, my dad texted me an article, a link to an article about them. And, you know, he's been living in New Jersey uh, for 40 years. And they vote in New Jersey and they care about politics and, and being involved civically in New Jersey. And this upset him. I tweeted about it that evening, and it got some attention, but maybe not as much as it should have. Uh, But then we had the election, and guess what? Both of those candidates for school board got elected. So just at a time when you think there's a lot of hate, and there may be, or you're at a time when you think that people are voting for improper reasons, you have two candidates in a local race. Is it the most important thing in the world when we're talking about the president tweeting from the White House? Well, in some ways it is. You know, maybe the most important thing for, for local people No matter where you're from, no matter what your name is, no matter how strange your name may sound to people, no matter what your religion is, that you can get involved. And not only get involved by voting, but get involved by running for a leadership position. In a related note, in Hoboken, New Jersey, another New Jersey local race, uh, a man by the name of Ravi Bala got elected mayor, the first Indian-American Sikh mayor of the town of Hoboken, who also had some racist literature circulated about him. There was a, a flyer that went around about him with a picture of him above which it said, don't let terrorism take over our town because I supposedly a, a person who wears a turban because he's Sikh must necessarily be a terrorist. Obviously, that's stupid. And I'm delighted to report that he won his race for mayor as well. And as I was sitting at home watching the returns on Tuesday night, I tweeted something that I believe very deeply. If you don't love America's diversity, then you don't believe in America's promise. 
So I want to congratulate Jerry Shee, Falgani Patel, and Ravi Bala. Good luck. That's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Senator Flake, and thank you for listening. And don't forget, live show coming up, our first live show taping of Stay Tuned in New York City, the evening of December 11th. I'm really excited to sit down with Daily Show correspondent Hassan Minaj. I love that guy. Tickets on sale now. Go to cafe.com slash creep. Shout out to my Apple Podcast reviewers. I see you. If you haven't written one yet, why not go write one? Like right now. Also, send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara, or even better, give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malosky, Chris Berube, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. We have new episodes coming for you every Thursday. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.